0: Good morning. It really is fantastic to be here with you, stood here. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I want to say an enormous thank you to you for your love, your support, your prayers. Um, as I wrote in the, uh, the weekly sheet, uh, still a little way to go, but we're making significant progress. And... Uh, yeah, I thought I might get a little bit emotional right now. It's just so fantastic being back with you, my church family. So bless you. It feels a long time ago since I was here, and I've worked out it's at least seven weeks, because the last sermon I preached here was on Mark chapter 3, and we've been looking at a chapter a week since then, and we're now in Mark chapter 10. And if you read the whole of Mark chapter 10, and this morning we will explore it all, we didn't read it all, but we'll explore it all, Um, you'll find there are significant echoes from the previous chapter, which we looked at last week in Supernova Sunday. Jesus reminds people regularly that in his way of life, those who want to be first must be last. Those who want to be great must be ready to serve But there's something else I want us to use as kind of the hook to hang our exploration on this morning. Twice in this chapter, Mark tells us Jesus asked people, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? That's an incredibly powerful, open question because it puts the emphasis on the other person. It places them in control and when Jesus asks it it actually puts him in the place of the servant. What do you want me to do for you? Now Mark only tells us Jesus asked this question twice but I think as we work our way through Mark chapter 10 we could imagine Jesus asking this question of all the people that he met and we can explore their answers. So, first of all, Jesus met some Pharisees. And if Jesus had asked them, what do you want me to do for you? They may well have said, stop what you're doing, leave and never come back. They wanted rid of him. And in this encounter, they tried to discredit him, as they did on many other occasions with trick questions, This time with a question about divorce. Now, before we go any further, I want us to remember that this is a painful subject for many of us. There are very few families nowadays not touched in some way by divorce. And even as you listen this morning, there may be raw nerves that are being touched. I promise I will be gentle, but I think it's really important that we hear what Jesus had to say, because I think we may be surprised We've seen on several occasions that the Pharisees, the religious fundamentalists of his day, wanted to get rid of Jesus. And they were very sneaky. At face value, asking Jesus a question about divorce doesn't seem very sneaky. But we need to look about where Jesus was physically when they asked this question. He was in exactly the same part of the world that John the Baptist, his cousin, had been in. And what was it that got John arrested and ultimately killed? John criticised Herod for marrying his brother's wife, for stealing her from him, for getting a divorce. Now you see that the question they ask Jesus about divorce, is it right for a person to divorce another, is a very loaded question. They're hoping that they can report to Herod that Jesus has criticised him in theory, if not in in actual words, in the same way that John the Baptist did, and then Herod will do their dirty work for him. And Jesus' response, as is usually the the way, is with a question. What did Moses command Jesus asked them about the commandment, but what they come back with is quoting his permission. They say that Moses permitted people to divorce in certain circumstances. They didn't actually answer Jesus' question because what Moses commanded was to honour marriage by being faithful. That's the command. The command is about two becoming one. And that's one of the reasons why divorce is so painful for people, because there is a tearing apart of what has become united. It's why people need understanding, love, support, maybe even counselling, to help them through such an experience. It's why we should never take divorce lightly but I would also say that sometimes it's the least painful way ahead. That's why there is a permission. But by the way Jesus answers the Pharisees' question, they couldn't argue with him. What he was saying, he was quoting directly from the Bible about the importance of the two becoming oneness of marriage. And he avoided getting in trouble with Herod and at the same time affirmed God's high view of marriage. However, when he's on his own with his disciples later on, he gives what seems to be some really tough teaching about divorce and remarriage. What he says is that when you remarry, you commit adultery against your former spouse. Does that mean it's wrong to remarry? That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say it is wrong to remarry after divorce. I think what he's trying to say is that actually there are long-lasting implications of divorce that may well come into your new relationship. Divorce is not something to take lightly in the way that Herod had done. When you remarry... There's a recognition that God's intention for your first marriage has not been fulfilled. The command of Moses, to which Jesus refers, the two-become-oneness that has been irretrievably broken is something that we carry with us. And I think it's really important, as we look at new marriage, remarriage, to think about what went wrong in our first marriage. To seek help, not to bring those things into our new relationship. And one of the ways we can do that is to include God as much as possible in that new relationship. But, my sisters and brothers, above all this morning, whatever you hear from this, hear this. That God's love, His grace, and His forgiveness are far greater than anything we can do. Far, far greater. God's love, God's grace and forgiveness is always available to us and there is no limit to it. So if you carry guilt, God doesn't want you to do that. If you carry hurt and pain, God wouldn't want that for you. I hope that makes some sort of sense. I realise this is really a sensitive subject for some, particularly So if this has raised questions or issues for you, do speak with somebody about it. Come and speak with me. Ask a friend to pray with you. Contact someone in the church so that one of the church team can support you. Let's also recognise that that question was asked in the context of trying to trip Jesus up. Jesus didn't... Immediately come out with, I need to tell you about this. It was kind of brought out of him. There's another group who come to Jesus, and this is the first part of the reading that Margaret shared with us. Parents and children coming to Jesus, and if they'd been asked by him, What do you want me to do for you? The parents would have said, We want you to bless our children. It was usual to ask preachers and rabbis in those days to bless your child. And as is often the case, parents were every possible advantage for their children, so why not ask Jesus to bless them? But the good old disciples thought this was a very unnecessary intrusion on Jesus' time. He's got important work to be doing. He doesn't need to be bothered with these children. So they keep them away. And yet when Jesus sees what's going on, the language in the original Greek is really strong. It didn't just say, stop doing that. He was really resentful that the disciples were doing this. And in response welcomed the children. Now we know that they were... Small children, little children, babes in arms, toddlers. Children who, in that stage of life, are still completely dependent on their parents. Children who have to have absolute trust in their parents. Who will eagerly receive what their parents will give them. And Jesus says, that's the way to receive the kingdom of God. That's the way to be a part of what he's doing. Receive the kingdom of God in the same way. Eagerly, with total dependence on God. Don't rely on yourself or your own resources. Trust him without reservation. Eagerly desire what he wants to give to you. And I thought the children last week in Supernova Sunday showed us that so well, particularly in those prayers about Ukraine. may we never be like those disciples, so caught up in the process of running church that we prevent people from receiving a blessing from Jesus, particularly children. And may we never also be like the next person that Jesus met, who was really dependent on all his resources, so much so that he couldn't let go to embrace God. There's that rich man who wanted confirmation that he was okay. If Jesus had asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He would have said, reassure me that I will be in heaven. He thought he was doing okay. According to the Pharisees' way of doing things, he was pretty good, but he just wanted to check. Imagine for a moment, a golfer in the biggest championship in the world, whatever you think that might be. He's on the final green. All he has to do is sink this putt and he will be the champion, or she. And they address the ball, the putt's just only about that distance. Hit the ball, it's going towards the hole, the crowd beginning to get excited. They're holding their breath, it's going to drop, it's going to drop, and then it just curls around the lip and doesn't drop. And there's a collective groan from the audience. That's kind of what happens here. People see this rich man They hear his answers about all the commandments he's been keeping and they're getting ready to cheer. He's going to do it. Jesus is going to say to him, yeah, well done, mate, you're in. And then Jesus says, but you just lack one thing. Oh! He missed. What he lacked, I think, was love. Love for God because his wealth meant more to him than anything else which breaks one of the commandments that Jesus didn't actually ask him about. He lacked love for other people. Alleviating the poverty of others was not as important to him as his own comfort. He thought his route to heaven was through following the rules rather than a relationship with God. And then... After this encounter, we get this really interesting moment when Jesus talks about camels going through the eyes of a needle. There have been a number of ingenious suggestions about uh, a camel gate, or a needle gate, sorry, going into a city where a camel had to unload everything because it was such a small, narrow gate. And the idea is we have to unburden ourselves of absolutely everything in order to get in to heaven. Well, I'm sorry to say there's absolutely no archaeological evidence anywhere that such a gate ever existed. There is, however, a lot of evidence that a camel going through the eye of a needle was a joke that they used to use a lot in Jesus' day. In other non-biblical writings, they talk about a camel going through the eye of a needle. People in Jesus' day, part of their sense of humour was just enormous exaggeration, hyperbole. They would make points, or just they would make one another laugh. It's a bit like if we say, I've told you a million times not to exaggerate. Now, unless you use a liquidiser, you are not going to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And I should point out, no actual camels were harmed in the making of that sentence point. That's the point. It's meant to be really, really, really difficult. It's meant to be silly, even more difficult than catching a coin on your elbow. What Jesus was emphasising is the difficulty, that this is a really difficult thing for people to do. If you've got a lot of money, if you've got a lot of stuff, that has a tendency just to distract you from God. That has a tendency to take hold of you in a way that actually God wants to. You start to rely on your reserves and your resources rather than on God. You start to protect your financial assets rather than having a godly generosity. In Jesus' day, and this is the point, this is why the disciples were so amazed, it was assumed that if you were rich, it was a sign that God blessed you. And actually Jesus is saying, you know what, your riches could be the actual, the actual opposite of that. It could keep you from God if they have a hold of you, if you're not careful. To flip it over, the more we have, the more generous God wants us to be. Jesus didn't say rich people can't get into heaven, can't be part of the kingdom of God, what he said was, because the disciples were saying, well, come on, who can get saved then? Jesus says, it's only possible with God. And actually, that's the same for every single one of us. It's only possible with God. The next people who we meet in Mark chapter 10 are his two of his disciples, James and John, who basically came to Jesus, and if he'd said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And actually, this is the first time he does say, what do you want me to do for you? They say, we want the best seats in the house. We want the places of honour and glory for when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. You see, they just heard Jesus predicting for the third time that he was going to be killed and then resurrected. Maybe they felt the need to protect their interests. If it was going to be that tough, they wanted to know it was going to be worth it for them. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't understand. And even if they did, it wasn't his place to decide who was going to be on either side of him in his glory. And actually the words are really, really significant here. In his glory. Because in the Gospels, Jesus often uses the word glory or glorification to refer to his death. He's being lifted up on the cross. Who was on Jesus' left and his right when he was crucified? Two thieves. Two convicted criminals, the lowest of the low. A place James and John weren't prepared to be. And then Jesus repeats what we heard about last week. That the way of life he'd come to bring isn't about power and status. It isn't about the best seats in the house. It isn't about everyone looking up to you. If you want to be great, be the servant of everyone. If you want to be first, put everyone else before yourself. There's one more person we're going to meet. A blind man, Bartimaeus, who is sitting by on the side of the road, begging. Did it every day. That was his life. And then he heard that Jesus was coming past. And <laughs> he made an almighty fuss. I mean, he really, really kicked up a fuss. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone's going, shh, don't bother him. And it just made him even louder. So eventually Jesus says, bring him over here. So Bartimaeus runs as much as he can, along with those leading him to get to Jesus. And Jesus asked him, the second person he asked, actually asked, what do you want me to do for you? Now the answer may have been pretty obvious, surely. But he put the control in the hands of a man who previously had had to be led everywhere by other people, who is at the mercy of people who drop coins in a begging bowl. What do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, I want to see. And that reveals just astonishing faith. Not because he called Jesus Rabbi, because he believed that Jesus could give him back his sight. He believed that with God all things are possible. And in Jesus he could tell that that was possible for him. And so Jesus did. Your faith has healed you, he says. And immediately, he can see. And Bartimaeus just jumps up and down for joy and then legs it back home and tells everyone, look, look, I can see, I can see. No, he doesn't, actually. What he does is he joins the following Jesus group. If Jesus could give him back his sight... He is worth following. So, what about you? Just as we close, I'd like to invite you to close your eyes. Think about all the people we've mentioned this morning. Other elements that resonated with you? Pharisees who wanted to discredit and get rid of Jesus. Because he was saying things they didn't like. How do we respond to people whose understanding about God is different from ours? Parents who wanted Jesus to bless their children. Do we get in the way of people meeting him? The children who were blessed, shown to be an example of how to receive God's kingdom, are we as reliant on God as they were? Do we trust him completely? that rich man who wanted to be reassured about his internal future, but whose wealth had a greater hold on him than God, who thought rules were the way to heaven rather than a relationship with God based on his love. James and John, who wanted everyone to look up to them and see how important they were and failed to remember that greatness is seen in service. Bartimaeus, who wanted to see... And wanted to see Jesus because he believed he would be able to change his life forever and he followed him when he did. Where are you in this narrative? Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And as followers of Jesus, that question is an astonishing one not just because Jesus it of us, but because he asks us to ask it of others. To empower others in our service. Not a promise to offer anything we can't, but what would you like me? What do you want me to do for you? And as we gather around the communion table now, just imagine Jesus asking you, what do you want me to do for you this morning? How will you respond? Do you want his blessing? Do you need his healing, spiritual, emotional, physical? Do you want to follow him? We bring those things with us to the family meal table where he waits for us. And as we come, we sing together a song which reminds us that this meal leads us to the foot of the cross.